in the Gospel of Mark uh, chapter 2 this morning. Mark 2. All of us need certain things to survive, like food. Uh, Starvation occurs after maybe 40 to 70 days or something like that. Most of us uh, find that even just a few hours, we start to get a little grumpy, a little bit hangry, and just a little bit not happy. Uh, Water, uh, even a shorter amount of time there. Without water, you're probably not going to make it much more than maybe three days. And oxygen, uh, if you think about that, uh, you won't make it for more than a few minutes if you don't have oxygen. And of course, you need things like clothing and shelter on a day like today. You don't want to be outside all day without a winter coat or something like that. You'll literally freeze. And all of us need sleep. Uh, Your body needs to have that. You can push your body to the limits, but eventually uh, your your bodily uh, abilities to reason and think and all kinds of things just start to diminish and eventually shut down. But are there any other needs more fundamental to survival than those? Is there anything else that you must absolutely have to survive, let alone thrive? And if so, what would it be? You actually have a need that's greater than any of those things. Uh, Mark 2, 1 to 12 is going to show you not only what that need is, but also how it can be met. met. Uh, The text, I think, is going to be very clear that you have a definite, concrete need. And there's a definite answer to it. Our text today takes us back to what is very likely the exact same location that we found ourselves in in Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. Uh, You may recall from the first chapter of Mark that one of the key scenes there took place in the home of Simon Peter. And it seems that that is where we find ourselves here again today. Uh, You may also recall from chapter 1 that Jesus and his disciples, they spent this time in Capernaum, Uh, But then they left Capernaum, and Jesus was very clear that he wanted to go from town to town to town to preach. However, uh, news about Jesus and his healing ministry spread so far uh, wide and fast that what Jesus intended to do, he was hindered from doing. You may remember last week as we looked at Jesus cleansing the leper that he just goes out and he tells everyone and the crowds become so great and big that Jesus is essentially driven out to the countryside. Apparently, afterwards, at some point, Jesus managed to slip back into Capernaum, and it may even be that he he, he got back into town somewhat unnoticed, at least for a moment. And that is where our story picks up here today. Mark chapter 2, follow along as I read verses 1 to 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Surprise, surprise, that didn't last long. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, 
or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I want to work through this story this morning and just say, wait, why don't we just note the actions of Jesus? What are the big things that he is doing in this story? So three actions that uh, I think are particularly noteworthy from this text. First of all, Jesus preaches a message of forgiveness. Look with me back at verses 1 to 2. And we're just going to note the setting of this story again. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And then notice the next line, and he was preaching the word to them. Uh, News spreads quite fast that Jesus is back in town. And next thing you know, a crowd begins to form and gather at Peter's house. The crowd probably, just to maybe give you perspective, uh, it's not necessarily this massive, massive crowd of people. Uh, given the size of what Peter's house probably would have been or any house in that day, maybe there's 30 people, 40 people, 50 people crammed within the walls of Peter's house. But nonetheless, his house is packed full all the way out the door and into the street. And what's Jesus doing in that setting? Is he healing anybody at that moment? No, he's not doing that. He's preaching The end of verse 2 says, and he was preaching the word to them. Uh, The heart of what Jesus preached can be found back in chapter 1, verse 15. We've gone back to this verse several times, but Jesus was preaching a message that went something like this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is near. And then in response to that, what should you do? Repent, implying that you are a sinner and believe in the gospel, the good news. In other words, you can be forgiven. I think we want to be really clear that Jesus is a preacher of forgiveness. And he's preaching a message to people again and again of forgiveness. He prioritizes that message and he loves to tell people about it. We see that he prioritizes the preaching of this message. Uh, You think back through what we've seen so far in, in chapter 1, verse 38. Jesus explained to his disciples that his primary intent was to preach to people. No, we're not going to go back into town. I'm not going to do a bunch more healings in Capernaum. What we're going to do is we're going to go from town to town to town to town. And I'm going to preach a message to people. And what is it that we see Jesus doing as he makes his way back into Capernaum and this group of people begins to gather? He's preaching again. And he's heralding a message of good news to people about a king and about a kingdom where very needy people are forgiven and made whole. It's good news. And so Jesus just keeps prioritizing this message, but we can also note, I think, that Jesus wants people to hear this message. He's sacrificially giving himself to keep preaching it. He's been swarmed by crowds for days, crowds so big that he's essentially been pushed out into the countryside and into the wilderness. He goes back home, and almost immediately he seems to get swarmed again in a house. And he doesn't shoo them away. He doesn't say, uh, leave me alone. I just need some personal time. No, what does he do? He preaches again. He preaches to them the message of forgiveness and the message of 
the kingdom. Uh, people go back to what they love. They keep going back and doing what they love. Almost, almost all of us are that way. Uh, when our family received the game Hungry Hippos, our kids were all excited about this wonderful game. And one of our children, our son in particular, kept going back to that game all day long. It was like on the kitchen table. It didn't matter what we were doing. He just backed to Hungry Hippos. He wasn't even playing with anybody. He just put all the balls in the middle and literally for hours at a time, bang, 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 hippos, 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 eating all the balls. And we'd take a break back to Hungry Hippos, back to Hungry Hippos, just loving it. That's what people do when they enjoy and are passionate about something. They keep going back to it again and again and again. You probably have your things that you love, and you just keep doing them. You just keep going back to them. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus has told us, here's what I'm passionate about. Here's what I'm going to do. And as we watch him throughout this gospel account so far, what we see him doing is keep going back to what he loves. I love this message of forgiveness, and I love these people, and I'm going to preach it, and I'm going to preach it, and I'm going to preach it, and I'm going to preach it. Jesus preaches a message of forgiveness. And I think it ought to be very clear that Jesus wants you to hear that message. Whatever it is that Jesus has to say about forgiveness, he wants you to hear it. And not only that, Jesus wants others to hear the message of forgiveness through you. Jesus wants this message to spread far and wide from town to town, from city to city, from country to country. Jesus has a message to to declare, and is it about forgiveness? Uh, A common paradigm for preachers is to move uh, kind of in this sequence from explanation of a text and then to illustrate it and then afterwards to apply it. Maybe you've noticed that kind of paradigm or pattern in preaching before. Well, Jesus has just been explaining or heralding his message of forgiveness, and maybe he's illustrated that in various ways and applied it. But this is his message, forgiveness. And now, in front of everyone, a real live illustration of what he is preaching is going to be offered. And that takes us to a second action of Jesus. Jesus pronounces people forgiven. He pronounces people forgiven. Forgiven. And in this story, we find him doing that with one person. Right in front of all these people who have been listening to Jesus preach forgiveness, a man is going to appear on the scene, and Jesus is going to pronounce or declare him forgiven in a moment. Let's jump back into the story. Look at verses 3 and 4. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when They could not get near him because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Okay, so you're following the story. Four men show up at Peter's house, and they're carrying a paralyzed man. Uh, And he's, he's on some kind of mat or a pallet. Perhaps he's a paraplegic and doesn't have the use of two of his limbs. Maybe he's a quadriplegic and, and, and can't move any of his limbs. What's very clear is that he cannot walk. But the thought of his friends, and likely of this man too, is if they can just get him to Jesus, Jesus is a healer. Jesus could heal him of all this. Well, the crowd is so packed that they can't get through the door, let alone to Jesus. The crowd is in the way. The crowd is a massive obstruction, plugging everything up. And so they decide to improvise. By the way, just a note on the crowds in Mark. Uh, Mark often notes the crowds, particularly in the, the first few chapters of this gospel. And as he does so, it's almost never in a positive light. 
you rarely hear the, the crowd described as of like they were doing something really good or they're responding as, as they should. The crowd is referred to negatively almost every time. The crowd is rarely responding. Uh, often the crowd is more of a hindrance than anything, just like in this text. Crowds were no measure of ministry or spiritual success in, in the life of Jesus. And I think it's a good reminder that in a world that is so enamored by numbers and size and crowds and growth and all kinds of things like that, we do well to remember that ministry success cannot be measured by the size of a crowd alone. Just look at the ministry of Jesus. But uh, moving on with our story here, in this time period, homes were often built with flat roofs uh, that probably would have functioned in, in a lot of ways like our decks today. And these could often be accessed by exterior stairs. You could take a staircase around the side of the house and get up there. And that was likely the case with this home. Well, these guys carry their friend up on this flat roof. They make their best estimate about where they think Jesus is standing. I don't know, maybe somebody peeked in a window or through the door. Okay, Jesus is up there near the, uh, he's by the back wall. And there they are up on this roof and they start digging. Uh, the wording of the, uh, the original language indicates that these guys are literally digging through the roof. I did this once <coughs> with my dishwasher. I wanted to run the water supply line underneath the kitchen floor and back up underneath the sink because it was running along the back wall and it kept freezing on me. And uh, so I made my measurements there up on the main floor with my dishwasher. Okay, I need to drill the hole right here, I hope, I think. And I went down to the basement with my drill and went right through the floor. My wife was super impressed. Thankfully, it was an extremely small pilot hole because I misjudged and drilled the hole one foot in front of the dishwasher. It was not good. Maybe these guys had a contractor with them, right? They can't see Jesus. They're up on the roof. He's right here. Boom. They nailed it. The roof would have been supported by timbers that ran from wall to wall. And in between those timbers would have been things like lath and sticks and grass and clay tiles and clay. They're digging. And probably a relatively large hole to get a man through. And Jesus and others are probably hearing something up on the roof and start to look up and maybe some sunlight comes through and then maybe a few fingers through a small hole. And as people are looking up, you look up at something where things are falling, getting dust in their eyes, those sorts of things. And then they lower this man his pallet down to Jesus. If you think that's crazy, what happens next is even more mind-boggling. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, okay, this is a very unique statement. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, when Jesus sees the faith of these guys, presumably the four guys up on the roof, and perhaps even the man that's being lowered down, he says to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. It's a pronouncement. It's a declarative statement. Your, son, or your sins, right this very moment, are forgiven. A few observations about what Jesus just said. The faith of the men the faith the men had here doesn't seem to be the type of faith that could save them from their sin. 
I mean, you're following the story and the faith that, that it is obvious to everyone. What everyone can see is that these men have a certain type of faith that believes that Jesus can heal this man. That Jesus can help this man physically. So why, like that's what everybody's seeing. Why is Jesus pronouncing him forgiven? Well, perhaps Jesus saw an additional kind of faith in this man as well that was looking for Jesus to forgive him of his sins. The, the text doesn't say it's possible. Or perhaps the pronouncement of Jesus and the man's acceptance of forgiveness, or we might even say the man's faith, maybe they were essentially simultaneous. Or maybe the man was even granted faith after Jesus made the pronouncement. The text doesn't give us those details, but what's really interesting about the man is he, he doesn't contest it. I mean, these guys just went through all this work. They just wrecked the roof on, on Peter's house. They're going to have to pay to fix it. And they lower this guy down to Jesus, and Jesus is not like, be healed. He makes a pronouncement about this man's sin. And he says, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say, well, thank you. That's super awesome. But actually, <laughs> I came to be healed. I want to walk. The text says that Jesus said to him, said to the man, son, your sins are forgiven, completely absolved in a moment. Jesus is granting God's forgiveness to this man. This is absolutely amazing. I was driving home with my two oldest kids after dark one evening this week and uh, somehow the stars came up in conversation. I think one of my kids noticed them and started talking about them. And so I just, uh, I, I asked my kids, well, what do you think when you see the stars? What do you think about? What comes to mind? And they said things like, well, God's power. And then one of my kids, I think, was trying to explain the whole statement that was made to Abraham about um, all these kids. You know, it's like there are going to be kids everywhere. Um, your, your children are going to be like the stars of the sky and like the sand of the seashore, that sort of thing. It didn't come out quite biblically accurate, but that, that was the vein that we were in. And I said to my kids, do you know that there are millions and millions of stars? I mean, we see a bunch of them, but there's way more than what we can see. And God has a name for all of them, and he remembers every single one of their names. Every single one of them. And then the conversation turned this way. I started talking about, I'm talking to my young kids, trying to explain something on their level. And I, I talked about how big God's brains are. The idea that God, he knows everything. And he remembers everything. So much so that he can call bazillions of stars by name and he doesn't forget a single one of them. Mommy and daddy can't even keep your name straight. Right? But God can look up at all those stars and he has a name for every single one of those millions and millions of stars and he never even forgets. Not even one of them. Then I said something like this to my kids. Do you know what's even more amazing than that, at least to me? Like, even though God has a memory like that, the Bible says that God chooses not to remember our sins. God knows every single sin that you and I have committed, every single one of them. And he could start from your earliest days and start making a list and writing every single one of them down by name, in detail. The list would be massive. But for people that God pronounces forgiven, he chooses not to remember a single one of those sins. 
God makes statements like this. Uh, this is Hebrews 8, verse 12. God says, I will remember their sins no more. It's a choice. I'm not going to remember those. Uh, Psalm 103, verse 12 says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. God completely and totally forgives people and chooses not to hold their sin against them. And that has happened for this man in this moment. Jesus has said to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Everyone in Peter's house needed that. And yet it's this one man that walks away with forgiveness. Jesus pronounces people forgiven. And Jesus wants to pronounce you forgiven. Jesus wants to forgive you. He wants to do that for you. Why do you think he's so passionate about this message? Why do you think that every time Jesus has the opportunity, he keeps coming back to preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching? He wants people like you and I to experience his forgiveness. Jesus just pronounced this paralyzed man to be forgiven in the records of heaven. Jesus is standing on earth and he's pronouncing this man forgiven in the records of heaven. But was he? Is it really that simple? Can Jesus just, well, you're like forgiven. Is it, is it that simple? Jesus preaches a message of forgiveness. Jesus pronounces or declares people forgiven. And we want to note a third action of Jesus in this text. Jesus has proven his authority to forgive. Jesus does have the power and authority to forgive. And to to declare people forgiven, Jesus can do that. And this text is going to go on to make it very clear. Jesus has proven that he has the power and authority to forgive sin. Many object that Jesus can't pronounce forgiveness. They might say, well, he doesn't have the power to do that. He, and maybe the arguments, they, they might go something like this. He's not God, or he hasn't always been God, or he was God for a while and then he wasn't. He can't speak on God's behalf. Others would say, forgiveness cannot be granted or pronounced. You, you can't just declare someone forgiven and in a moment all their sins be absolved. Forgiveness must be earned. You must be something. You must do something. You must work for something. You must attain something. You must clean yourself up in the eyes of God. You must earn the favor of God. All kinds of people would object that Jesus cannot just pronounce forgiveness. And that's exactly what certain people do in this passage. Look at verses 6 and 7 and listen for the objections. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes take great offense at what Jesus just said to this man. And they essentially say, who is this guy? What is this guy talking about? No no man can pronounce forgiveness. Even as you look all the way back in the Old Testament, like that is the prerogative of God the Father. Only God can do that. These men reasoned in their hearts. And what's interesting, the text seems to highlight that this is an internal dialogue going on within the hearts of these men. And Jesus heard every single word that these men were thinking. And he's about to answer their thoughts. I mean, maybe, maybe, they're, maybe they're whispering between each other. 
But the text seems to indicate this is what's in their hearts. And Jesus is going to answer them. Um, yeah, many people object that Jesus cannot pronounce forgiveness, but Jesus has shown that he can. Look at verses 8 and 9. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why? Do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, as he had just said. Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Jesus responded to their internal reasonings and questions with some questions of his own. Why do you question my authority to forgive sin? Here's the question for you. Which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven. That's one option. Or option number two, is it easier to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Well, one of those statements can be verified, but the other can't. Uh, you can verify, for example, if a person has been forgiven, or you can't verify if a person has been forgiven or not. It's just a statement that's made. How would anybody be able to tell? But you can verify if a lame person is all of a sudden able to walk. And these people have known this guy for years. Anyone can say that your sins are forgiven. That's an easy pronouncement for anyone to just say. But not just anyone can prove it through the power to heal. Uh, but what is easier? It seems like a pretty simple question on the surface of things, but I think the reality is, is that Jesus just asked a very, very complex question. You, on the one hand, you have which is easier to say, which we just looked at. It, well, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or is it easy to say rise, take up your bed and walk? But on the flip side, which is easier to do? And that all of a sudden becomes a very, very hard question because both of those options are so tightly knit together that you almost cannot even separate them. What lied behind this man's sickness was what? The sin of Adam. And Jesus isn't pointing to any particular sin in this man or anything like that, but why do any of us ever get sick? There was no sickness before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. What lied behind this man's sickness was the sin of Adam. All sickness can be traced back to the curse of sin. And further, to, to complicate the question more, in order to offer eternal forgiveness, you must be God. They're right. Only God can do that. Only God could do such a thing. It's impossible for a mere man to declare or pronounce someone forgiven. So the question is a tough one, but here's what's obvious. If Jesus has the authority to heal this man, then Jesus has the authority to forgive him. Look at verses 10 to 12. But that you may know, Jesus said, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went home before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus miraculously healed this man, just like he cleansed the leper in the previous text. And he does this before all of them. Everyone in Peter's house sees it. This man stands up. On his feet. He couldn't walk before. 
He grabs his pallet with his arms. We don't know if he could move his arms before either. And he walks out in front of all these people, probably with a huge smile on his face. And all the people marvel in awe and amazement. But sadly, that seems to be where it stops for the crowd. Jesus has proven his authority to forgive. But this example of of proof is really only the beginning. Because Jesus is going to heal time after time after time after time. Proving his authority to forgive. And then eventually all of his healing acts will reach their culmination in one final grand healing. Proving without any question his authority to forgive. And the man healed in this grand final act will be defiled by more sin than any other man has ever in the history of the world been defiled. This man will be guilty of the sins of the world and those sins will be so great that they will drive him to the grave and to death itself. He will die. The culmination of all the healings of Jesus, the greatest proof of his authority to forgive sin is when Jesus dies bearing the sins of the world upon himself. And then he takes his own life up again. The greatest proof of Jesus' authority to forgive sins is the resurrection. Let me just read you several verses about it. Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. And then it says he was raised for what? Our justification. So that people like you and I could be declared righteous. We could be declared and pronounced forgiven. 1 Corinthians 15.17 says if Christ has not been raised, if he's still dead, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You're not forgiven. Luke 24, 46 to 47 says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. He's alive in this message of repentance and forgiveness. That can be preached everywhere. Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John 10, 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, Jesus said, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22 says, For as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus has the power and authority to forgive. He preaches a message of forgiveness. It is the message that is on his heart. It is the thing that he keeps going back to again and again and again and again. He preaches the message of forgiveness. He pronounces people forgiven. And Jesus has proven his authority to forgive. Uh, Many of you have tickets for skilled trades. 
uh, whether you're an electrician, perhaps a welder, a gas fitter, or something else, your tickets qualify you to perform certain restricted tasks. The scribes were basically saying in their hearts, Jesus, (laughs) whoever it is that you are, you don't have a ticket for that. You don't have a ticket authorizing you to do that. Only God has that ticket. And Jesus demonstrates that he does indeed have the ticket to forgive sins. Yes, I can pronounce people forgiven. Not because Jesus earned it by completing some course of action and becoming somebody important, but because Jesus is God, equal with God the Father. He is the Son of Man that was spoken about in the book of Daniel. He has authority. And he has proven that authority to forgive. And the question for every single person is is something like this. Will you recognize that authority? And will you ask him to forgive you and to grant you eternal life? How will you personally respond to the authority of Jesus to forgive sins? We have several examples in this text alone of responses to the authority of Jesus and his his ability to forgive. You might respond like the scribes. How did they respond? Oh, with great criticism, skepticism, and doubt. No, you can't do that. Or you might respond like the crowd, and you may be in amazement and awe and wonder at Jesus and what he can do, and yet have no personal response to it. And we see one other response in that, this text, and that is that of the paralyzed man. And it's not even fleshed out. But apparently this pronouncement that Jesus man, made to him, it was received. Only one man left Peter's house forgiven that day. One man walked away changed. Jesus wants you to, to join him in that. And so this forgiveness, this message that Jesus is offering that, hey, you need to repent. You're a sinner. Things are not right and well. You are not part of the kingdom of God. You are a part of a kingdom of darkness. You deserve eternal condemnation and judgment. Repent. You're a sinner. You've got to acknowledge that and believe, trust the gospel, the good news and Jesus and who he is and what he's done and what he can do for you. What about you? Do you recognize that Jesus can forgive you? And if so, why don't you just say, Jesus, would you do that for me? Would you forgive me and make me part of your kingdom? Your sin, by the way, as well, is more serious than all your other challenges. This man can't walk. He's got some major, major life difficulties. And what's the very first thing that Jesus wants to do for this man? He wants to forgive him of his sin. Also on this whole realm of forgiveness, there is a whole train of thought that teaches the importance of forgiving yourself. Have you ever heard people talk about this? I just can't forgive myself for what I've done. And I just, no matter how hard I try, it's just, I just need to learn to forgive myself, but it's like I can't. Um, I've, I've heard many, many people talk like that. Perhaps you have too. It's a very common way of thinking. Do you know that the Bible never teaches you to forgive yourself? Ever? I'm not sure you can find a single text. It's like, hey, do you know what you need to learn to do? Forgive yourself. 
You will not find that text because it's not in the Bible. You don't need to learn how to do that. You need to learn how to accept and embrace the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And maybe there are some of you sitting here and you go, I, I am so, I've done so many things wrong. I'm so burdened down and weighed down by guilt and I got to do this and I got to do that and then maybe Jesus forg- will forgive me. And No, you, you need to claim the forgiveness that he, he offers you and receive it as a free gift. And some of you, even after you've done that, the guilt of your sin just crushes you. I mean, some of you sit here and you have things that you have done that keep you up at night. You lay down at night to sleep and it's what's on your mind. And you wake up in the morning and it's what's on your mind. And the guilt is crushing and it is great. And you go, you you just can't get over what you have done. And try as you might to forgive yourself or whatever the thing may be, you can't do it. Well, that's, God never called you to do that. Jesus is one who preaches a message of full and total forgiveness, and he pronounces people forgiven. He has the authority to forgive. And our response is to say, thank you. I will take that by faith. So I want to encourage you, as a, if you're a Christian, enjoy your forgiveness in Christ. Romans says there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That that is a massive, powerful, huge statement. Romans is also clear. We don't don't continue in sin that grace may abound. There's all this forgiveness, so now I can do whatever I want. No, actually, this great forgiveness motivates us to live for the Lord. But enjoy that forgiveness. Um, one of the things that's really helped me in my own life with this and my own sin and guilt and what happens, uh, an analogy that's been helpful for me, I know this is a bit of an outdated piece of technology now, but you think about a DVD player and some of you may still have piles and piles of DVDs by your TV or whatever. And if you want to watch a movie by DVD, you're going to take it out of the case, you're going to plop it in the DVD player and you're going to hit play. And uh, what happens oftentimes with our sin is all that sin is on a disc, right? Whatever it is that you, you've done. And, and let's be honest, a lot of us have done some really terrible things. We're guilty of great sin. And we take this disc called our sin and we plop it in and we don't even just hit play. We hit play and then we hit repeat. And it just spins and it spins and it spins and it spins and it spins in our hearts and our minds. And the guilt is crushing. And what the gospel, what the Bible teaches us to do is, listen, like that disc that's spinning around in your brain and in your heart, take that thing out, break it up, and chuck it. Because Jesus has already done that. And there's a new disc that you need to put in. And don't just hit play on this one either. Put it on repeat. And it's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus preaches a message of forgiveness. He pronounces people forgiven in a moment. It happened at a point in time already. He had the authority to do that. And when the guilt of sin crushes you, what do you do? You put Jesus and his work on repeat in your mind and your heart. And you know what starts to happen with guilt? When you treat your guilt and your sin like that, every single time you just say, Wait, I am great. I am a great sinner. But what's even greater than my sin is Jesus and his sacrifice and his authority and power to forgive. You put that on repeat. 
And God will quiet your soul and give you joy. Jesus has the authority to forgive every single one of your sins. Your greatest need is not food. It's not water. It's not oxygen. And you have to have every single one of those things. Your greatest need is to escape the eternal wrath of God for your sins. You need God's forgiveness. And it's found in Christ alone. Isn't that a wonderful message? It's no wonder that Jesus is preaching and he's saying to people, the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. Repent. You are a sinner. No buts about it. Repent and believe the gospel. This is good news. Jesus is one who forgives. Would you bow your